This morning is Sunday morning. It's December 24th, Christmas Eve. Our title this morning is Santa Claus, Real As It Gets. I don't want to give away too much of this before we get into it, but how often have you heard people in the church say things like, Oh, all of the emphasis is on Santa Claus now. We need to get Jesus back into Christmas, and we need to focus on what is right. Never mind that Jesus was not born on December 25th, was not even born in the month of December. We can also overlook the fact that there were at least three pagan holidays celebrated at this time that it looks as if Christmas supplanted. We have our manger scenes that look like they're from South Louisiana, you know, where we have the Acadian shack with the baby Jesus in it and a 20-year-old Mary. None of it historically accurate. But we just got to put Jesus back in Christmas and get rid of the old... Santa Claus, right? I'm here to tell you today that Santa Claus was a real human being. And the reason that he's known worldwide is because of his love for Jesus. And I'll tell you about him. But before we do, I wanted you to turn to Matthew 16. Starting in the 13th verse, we're going to pick up with a story where Jesus talks to his Talmudim. These are his disciples. That's what a Jewish rabbi called his disciples. And he chose his disciples on the basis of their ability to be like him. A very important thing then would be this question that's coming. In Matthew 16, verse 13, When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked the disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? Now we read this and we have a Bible that was handed down to us without much cost. I mean... At most in here, somebody paid $150 for their Bible. At least it was a gift to you. Or you took it from the hotel where the Gideons left it. But there was a time period when this scripture that you have in your hand caused the men who printed it in our language to be burned on printing presses. And yet it was so valuable that they willingly gave their lives so that you could read this story. That puts a whole new light on how often you read it and how important it is. When we look at this and we see that they're in the region of Caesarea Philippi and you think, my God, well, why is that important? Why weren't they in Baton Rouge, Louisiana? Why weren't they in College Station, Texas? Why is it important that they were in Caesarea Philippi? I brought some pictures from one of my trips to Israel that I thought you might appreciate. This will shed some light on that for you, hopefully. As this, uh, I hope, gets bigger. Here we go. What you see here, kill that first light, Matthew. What you see here is a mountainside. You see the pretty green grass? These are the foothills to Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon is the northernmost point in Israel's territory. Sometimes it's snow, it's beautiful. Off of these foothills flow three tributaries that form the Jordan River. This is an important landmark in Israel. It's a landmark that everybody, whether they had traveled there or not, would be familiar with because it's the source of the Jordan River that so much life comes from. The foothills of Mount Hermon. What you see are some stones that are ruins from things long past. As we move through these next pictures, you'll see some other things. You see how this has some curvature to this stone here. This is half of something that was set in these hills. As you look, this will get clear. There are caves set in the foothills of Mount Hermon. And in these caves... There were objects of worship. 
Gary Williams in this picture is standing in one of these caves. And what you can see is that cut out of the mountain, there still exists carved in stone, in the rock, if you will, places with pedestals to put gods from the day to worship in. Can you all see the cave? Here, among many other gods, was the god Pan. He was in the Greek pantheon of gods, and he was wicked beyond description. There are children in here, and so I won't go into the descriptions of the worship of Pan, but it involves human sacrifice in the worst of worst ways. But what you probably can't see is I took a picture of an artist's rendition of what this mountainside looked like in the day that Jesus was there. And what you see are temples. There's a temple here, another temple here, another one off to the side. And they're set in the mountainside because the Roman world came to this place to worship their gods. Go back one, I'm sorry. As you look at these foothills, I found an inscription. This said, the temple of Augustus. Why on earth would there be a temple to Augustus Caesar in Israel? Well, it just so happens that a guy named Julius Caesar, who the world's pretty familiar with, when he died, there happened to have been a comet. And when this comet occurred in 46 B.C., men came and said, Surely Caesar was a god. And because Caesar was a god, he should be worshipped as a god. And the cult of Roman emperor worship was born. Well, he didn't have a son, but he had a successor. And his name was Octavian. You may remember this from reading Julius Caesar in school. And Octavian took on the name Augustus. Caesar, the revered one. And what is interesting is during the day that the nativity takes place, during the day that God's Son was born into the world, there was already a man that had this title. Augustus Caesar reigned from 27 B.C. to 14 A.D. So this is right up through Jesus' bar mitzvah, which I also will show you a picture of a bar mitzvah here in a minute. He was followed by a guy named Tiberius Caesar. He was alive when Jesus was actually killed. It's in this city where there was a temple in his honor with a slogan that you need to hear. The slogan written in the stone and also on the coins of the day is there is no name save Augustus by which men can be saved. Augustus had a priesthood that operated in this temple at this place and various other places throughout the Roman Empire where men were offered the forgiveness of sins for a price. Augustus commanded from his first day of ascension to the throne that his birth be celebrated with 12 days. On the first day of Christmas, my true love gave to me. Uh huh. 12 days they celebrated his birth. He predates Jesus. The world already had someone who was proclaimed a savior, he was the head of the Roman Empire. He was said to be ushering in an age of universal peace. This was his own proclamation. He was going to bring the world peace through his superior might and warfare. There was a temple to worship him. Twelve days set aside to honor this Caesar's day of his birth. His priests offered forgiveness of sins. He hired poets. Their literature still survives today to say... Peace on earth, joy to men. 
for Augustus has been born. Any of that sound familiar to you? So let me take you back to the setting that Matthew wrote this in. Matthew wrote this within a generation of the time of Jesus. And he points out that it was in the region of Caesarea Philippi that Jesus asked an important question. Why do you think that would be? Why did Jesus pick this one spot in Israel to ask this all-important question? Why not ask it outside the temple? Why not ask it on the Sea of Galilee? Why did He travel to the northernmost point in Israel to ask this question? Could it be because these Jewish disciples, soon to be apostles, lived in a world that was intimidating, polluted by corruption, the gods of the world behind them, all of the external pressures in the world to yield to Caesar. I taught you a few weeks ago that later the Christian church couldn't buy and sell in the marketplaces without the mark of the cult of a guy named Domitian on their heads and hands because they'd be killed if they did. These apostles were under tremendous pressure and now they have to make a choice. What is worldwide accepted, what has all of the glory, pomp, and pageantry of Rome, Is this the God that we serve? Or is this lowly carpenter born in a manger of little reputation and no account with no beauty or majesty to draw men to Him? Is He the God? When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, He asked the disciples, Who do the people say the Son of Man is? What a profound question! Behind Him are the backdrop of all of the gods of the pantheon that people serve for various reasons. And chief among them, a guy that claimed to be God's Son, bringing universal peace to the world. No name save Augustus by which men can be saved. And Jesus chooses this setting to ask, Who do people say the Son of Man is? We have occasion to ask ourselves the same question. Every time you're in an intimidating situation, whether it's from pomp and pageantry of the religious crowd. Remember, these people were all very religious. Or whether it's from downright carnality trying to force itself upon you. In the backdrop of the pollution and corruption in the world, Jesus asked you a question. Who do people say that I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist. You might say baptizer. John the baptizer. Others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you? It's not enough to know of Jesus' reputation. It is not enough to say, some say that he's a good man. Some say that he's a prophet. Isn't it interesting that most Jews will say that Jesus was a prophet? Prophet who got carried away. All Muslims will say that Jesus is a prophet. And Christians will proclaim Him the Son of God and most don't even know what it means. But what do you say about Him? Better than that, what does your daily life say about Him? This is a day where we're going to give gifts in His honor, where we've decorated our houses in His honor, where everywhere we go you'll say Merry Christmas to people and proclaim something with your mouth. The important question is the other 364 days of the year. Do they proclaim that He is the Son of God? Merry Christmas so to speak. Jesus wanted to know of the people that claimed to follow Him, who does everybody say that I am? And more importantly, who do you say that I am? He asked, who do you say that I am? Verse 16, 
Simon, Peter answered, You are the Christ. That means the Anointed One, the Messiah. You are the Son of the Living God. Now, there are many ways that Peter could have answered this question. Peter could have said, You are the prophet who was to come. You are the Son of David. He could have said, You are the righteous King. He could have said so many things. But standing in front of the temple to Augustus Caesar, where the slogan said, There is no name by which men can be saved save Augustus, the Son of God. Peter chose wisely. He said, You are the Anointed One, the Christ. You are the Son of the Living God. Why Living God? Well, it's true that the Hebrews saw God as very much alive. But this brings into contrast something. Dead religion serving dead people versus a live religion serving a living God. See, Julius Caesar was dead, never again to reappear. In Jesus' own lifetime, we would see Augustus Caesar die and Tiberius take up his charge and say, Hey, I'm now the Son of God. This brought a sharp contrast between the followers of Yeshua, the Hamashiach, and the Romans. Their gods kept dying while ours is eternally alive. We have always what is bold, what is obvious, what is right in your face and overwhelming. And it will try to force you to do what you should not do. And we find that the holy ways of God are subtle. They're less obvious. They're never overwhelming. They're not bullying. You have the choice before you, the still small voice of the carpenter born in a manger or the loud, thundering cathedrals of Rome lifting up men to be worshipped. I'm not talking about our present day churches. I'm talking about the voice of the world that flows through your TV sets, that flows through your radios, that badgers you from billboards, that everywhere you go is right in your face, that is written in the backdrops of our society everywhere that we go, versus the small, still voice of a carpenter asking his followers, Who do you say that I am? Because, friends, we make a choice every day. And I love Christmas. And I want to come in here and tell you Merry Christmas, goodwill, and peace to men. But if we only did it on one day, what would that really mean? Jesus put His followers in the position of having to choose. I hope to put you in the position to have to choose how you will live each day. Let us read on. Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. What would man be trying to reveal? The gods of the world all around you. The gods of pleasure. The gods of decadence. And yet the God in heaven revealed to this lowly fisherman who felt honored to be called by a Jewish rabbi, this is the one. This is the one with the very words of life, he would later say. And I tell you that you are Peter, a tiny little rock. And on this rock I will build my church. Peter was a rock, right? And on Peter's heart that was his rock was written an inscription that said... Jesus, the Christ, 
the Son of the living God, as opposed to this mountain of rock behind him that said, Augustus is God. It is on the revelation that is written on your hearts, the revelation that says, Jesus is my Lord and I will bow to no other, not at any time that the kingdom of God is built. That is what hell cannot prevail against. It is certainly not a man. If it were a man, you name me one that hasn't been knocked down. Friends, our enemy is crafty. He's taken the most holy of things and made them obscene. But we serve a God who can take obscene things, recycle them, and do beautiful things with them. And most of us have been recycled in that way. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, a pebble. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. What do you think he thought the gates of Hades were in this setting? They thought they were standing at the threshold of hell. I remember 20, 30 years ago, a famous preacher, one that had a ministry around the world, stood in the French Quarter in New Orleans and said he was standing at the very gates of hell. Now this man's forgotten more about the Scripture than I'll ever know. He's brilliant. I don't in any way diminish what he said. But certainly it was figurative, was it not? Do you honestly believe that this learned man believed that the literal gates of hell were there? No. But by their actions you could see that this was the very gateway into depravity. Well, where do you think Jesus is explaining this setting at? Do you think that the setting makes a difference? Certainly it does. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades, the literal ones, and the Roman Empire shoving its idolatry down these Jews' throats, will not prevail against this revelation the Christians have. It will not prevail. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Binding and loosing was a practice of the rabbis. We've made this something incredibly difficult because we've not understood the Scripture and the culture in which it was given. In order for a rabbi to have a new teaching, he had to find two other rabbis. These other two rabbis would agree with his teaching, and this would give him something that the Hebrews called shmiha. This shmiha meant that you had the authority. Do you remember that they asked Jesus over and over and over, where did He get such authority? This meant that you had the authority to proclaim something that had not yet been proclaimed. A new interpretation. Jesus is telling Peter, it is in this way, the fact that you reveal, you got revelation from the Father, and it's written on your heart, that you will have shmiha, authority. The way that they said this was you could bind a teaching or you could loose a teaching. If teaching was authoritative, it was said to be loosed for all the people's consumption. If the teaching was not authoritative, if it did not have the seal on it, shmiha, then it was to be bound. What Jesus is telling Peter is you will not be dependent upon any religious system. You can hear from the throne. And when you do, it's just like the binding and loosing you see every day in the Sanhedrin and in the synagogues. You think this was important to an older fisherman, maybe twice the age of the other disciples, who is impetuous and bold and stepped out in faith constantly but continually seems to have gotten it wrong. You think this was important when they entered not Caesarea Philippi, 
but the shadow of a grandiose temple and a religious leadership built upon pedigree. Do you think this was important to him when he would have to stand and be flogged for the name of Jesus? God has always taken the humble, the small, those of little account and done great things with them because this, this is how He gets glory for it. He almost never takes the Roman empires of the world, those that are immediately impressive, overwhelming in size and stature, and does beautiful things with them. And in that sense, we should rejoice because the Scripture says not many of us were of noble birth when we were called. Now, there might be a king or queen in here, and I don't know it, but I suspect that most of you have the royal blood of Jesus flowing through your veins, and that's what makes you special. Then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. What a strange thing. We're going to move on to Santa Claus here in a minute. But once this revelation was there, Jesus says, now until you understand more about it, I don't want you to announce me as the king of Israel. I'm not here to overthrow the Romans, as you would think. I'm telling you that I am planting a stone in your heart with a revelation written on it that this other kingdom will never overcome. Boy, isn't that good? Aren't you glad you have that? It's time to knock the dust off of it and let it be real every day. We have a new year coming. People make New Year's resolutions. They decide that this year is going to be different than the last. We're going to diet, right? We're going to eat well. We're going to go to bed earlier. We're going to do all of these things. How about we knock the dust off of that living stone in us and in every situation? We don't say with our lips, but we acknowledge with our life. Jesus is Lord. Would that not be a Christmas present worthy of giving? He wants your life, saints. As we move on here, I want to show you one other picture real quick, just because. Here, huh? The Jews love the Word of God. I took this picture in 1998 in Israel. What this young man has wrapped around his hands is a leather tassel with the Word of God written on it. What he has on his forehead is a box containing the Word of God, and what he has in his arms is a Torah scroll. They were taught to love it. They talked about it when they walked along the road. They talked about it when they laid down at night. When they went in and out of their houses and in and out of their city gates. Because God's Word says to do that. God knew that we would be raised a generation of corruption and pollution. With the world's gods obvious and right in your face. He knew that it would take work to ingrain the truth in us. So He set into a culture the desire to permeate children with the Word of God. If he dropped that scroll, how tightly he's holding it, it was a very long fast. Because when people don't have the Word of God, they die for lack of nourishment. So this was ingrained in the culture. One more thing I want to show you, and then we're going to get back to Christmas. Promise. Y'all be patient with me for a minute, or y'all ready to leave? <laughs> Come on. Uh-oh. How about this one? Jesus once said that narrow is the way that leads to life, and broad is the path to destruction. He also added the accent that few are those that find the road to life. Do you know where he was when he said that? He was right in this place. This is a replica of the second... Uh, temple 
that Zerubbabel built and Herod renovated. This is the entrance. This is the exit. It is always, always a narrower road to approach God than it is to walk away. There are always fewer people who will choose this humble shepherd as Lord in the backdrop of Caesarea Philippi. It is always easier to be on a road to destruction than it is to be on the narrow road that leads to life. Why do you think Jesus chose the places that He did? Because He wanted you to understand it. He didn't want you to have to have a master's in divinity. He did not want you to have to have a doctorate in New Testament interpretation. He wanted the common person to understand what He was about. As we move on from Caesarea Philippi and the choice that we all make of Jesus, Lord, we need to understand that this day that we're celebrating has... I'm going to turn that off, TJ. Just reach up and turn that off. This day that we're celebrating has not always existed as it does. We have a, a way of thinking that if something existed in Mom's day and in Grandpa's day, well, then it's right and it's always been right. Anything that's been around several generations feels right, doesn't it? No? Recipes are handed down from generation to generation as if there was no other way. You say, Mom, I would like to make cornbread this way. Oh, that's not the way we do it. The seating order in this church, the reason that I fought with us, it lovingly fought with us, about making sure that we didn't add chairs until we had them all full, was because we are creatures of habit. We walk in and we sit in the same place, and so what if there's three spaces that nobody else can sit in? Friends, I want to examine our lives. I want to break out the old and bring in the new. This Christmas has been handed down to us a certain way, so we've been taught that this fat guy in the red suit is a bad thing. And what does he have to do with this Middle Eastern picture of a nativity here? And what we need to do is get him out and get more Jesus in. Well, let's examine how much Jesus there is in Christmas for a moment. To start with, there was no Christmas, not of any kind. The Grinch wasn't there to steal it, and it had never occurred before the year 376 A.D. And we only know about that because in 386, a document survived that mentions origins being ten years earlier. Prior to that, it never occurred. Do you know what the church celebrated in the month of December? Hanukkah. Oh, well, that's that Jewish thing, right? Let me ask you something. Is Christmas mentioned in the Bible? But Hanukkah is. Jesus celebrated it. The cleansing of the temple. Well, that's all for the Jews, right? Well, if they had had no temple cleansed, where would Jesus have been blessed? Where would the prophetess have spoken words over him? Where would the Passover lambs have been killed that he ate every year? Hmm? We owe a rich cultural heritage to the Jews. There's nothing wrong with celebrating Hanukkah. My son asked me what it was all about, and it occurred to me. Matthew's been on the right track. He wants to teach his children about the festivals. I do too. They're biblical. There's nothing at all wrong with that. That's not becoming a Jew. That's honoring something that happened in history for your benefit. Jews first, then you. Christmas never occurred before 386. I'll tell you all about Hanukkah on another day. In 1555, the Parliament in England was so disgusted with a practice called the Lord of Revelry in all of these towns, what had begun to happen was in addition to a 
Santa Claus figure, in addition to a Christmas tree, in addition to a Yuletide log, they had adopted another figure called the Lord of Revelry. In other words, we had a good guy at Christmas and we had a bad guy at Christmas, and we talked about them both. The Parliament in England in 1555 was so disgusted because a Protestant Reformation had happened, and they said, wow, we get to read a Bible in our language. We don't have to read it in Latin anymore. And now that we can read it, there's no Christmas in it. Let's do away with it. Isn't this what we religious people always do? You get sincerely born again. You're excited. You look around and you say, wow, that's tainted. Oh my goodness, that's tainted. And look here too, it's tainted. And pretty soon you've excluded yourself from everything that is or ever will be. My car was made by a Buddhist. I can't drive in it. My money has a bad symbol on it. I can't use it. My shirt was made in a country where they worship cows. I can't wear it. We ignore the advice of the apostle that says we are in the world, but we are not of the world. I'm encouraging us to take a new view on Christmas. Not one that is Romanism, that celebrates men. Not one that our Protestant forefathers gave us that said, get rid of it all, throw out the baby with the bathwater. I believe in a live and vibrant faith that will look and find the truth in anything and celebrate that. Is it true that Easter is named after a foreign god? Yeah, it is. And my kids love Easter and we have a good time and we celebrate Jesus. Is it true that a Yule log is a part of a pagan ceremony? Yes, three of them. Is it true that Christmas was not a biblical institution? Yes, and I love it. I've been criticized in my short walk with Christ for having Christmas trees in my house. Don't you know that the Old Testament talks about people sacrificing their sons and daughters in the trees? I hadn't killed my kids in it yet. There were heathen winter holidays. Saturnalia, Juvenalia, Brumalia. They were celebrated all over the Roman Empire. As Rome took over the church, it was natural to say, hey, we've always partied on these days. We would like to continue to party on these days. Those of you from Louisiana know exactly what I'm talking about. We had more festivals in Louisiana than any other state in the United States. Strawberry festivals, crawfish festivals, music festivals, because people generally like to have a good time. And in the face of, hey, party or no party, they chose to party. This time to ascribe something good to it, the day that Jesus was born, even if it wasn't that day. Can you see some good in that? I can. Let's talk about St. Nicholas for a minute. If what we have is a non-biblical holiday, if what we have is not really the day that Jesus was born, if what we have is really a revision of an old Roman practice, how on earth can this be good? Well, in Turkey... In the third century, a man was born. It was in a Greek province called Patera in a town called Lycia. This is present-day Turkey right now. This is long before the followers of Muhammad took it over. It's long before they were known for the things they are now. They were a Greek province of Rome in what is present-day Turkey now. There was a man named Nicholas. And this Nicholas was the son of wealthy ship merchants and fishermen. 
Nicholas was born to Christian parents during a time when Christianity was not popular. This is before the wolf had put on sheep's clothing. This is while Rome was still bearing its teeth at the church with full force. There was an emperor named Diocletian that had issued an official decree throughout the Roman Empire that said it's not only okay to kill Christians, it's preferable. And this man grew up in that time period. Later, Constantine and some emperors that succeeded him issued edicts of toleration and it became okay to be a Christian and then became the state religion of Rome. Interesting how inside of 50 years we go from Christians in an arena to proclaiming an entire empire Christian. But in any case, Nicholas grew up in this environment. He began to become known for something. Every time he heard of a need, he would try to meet it. And at first this was a secret thing and nobody knew that it was occurring. And one of the more famous stories is of a man who was poor but had three daughters. And in this day, if you had a daughter, you had to provide a dowry for her to become married. It was a husband's responsibility to provide for a wife, and he needed a little head start because you women are expensive. (laughs) Be careful there, brother. I did kind of hang it out there to see if somebody would give me an amen. And without a dowry... Women did not get married. And an unmarried woman in the third century in Turkey likely had no prospects for occupation other than prostitution, and this was not generally frowned upon. It was just considered of life. Not very nice, huh? I got a daughter. I guess I'd start saving for a dowry now. Nicholas heard of a situation where the man with three daughters had no dowry. He was a sincere blood-bought follower of Jesus who was not simply proclaimed by Rome a Christian. He was a Christian when it was unpopular, when they were being persecuted, and so was his family. Having been raised in a situation where he was taught the teachings of Christ, he did something profound. Hear this, saints. Something profound. He decided to do the things that Jesus did. Wouldn't the church be a better church if that was true? So what do you think Nicholas did? He walks by this apartment. That's what I'm deciding to call it. It's really a two-story mud brick building. And he fills a sock with gold coins. And he pitches it in an open window. So that the oldest daughter who is at the age to become married or become a prostitute has a dowry to become married. He didn't go announce that he did it. In fact, he told no one that he did it. So as time goes on, the second daughter is now at age to be married. She's facing a horrible situation and father doesn't have anything to do for her. So old Nicholas is walking down the street one evening, fills a sock with some more gold coins and throws it through the window. Now saints, you know how news travels, don't you? Right? Go sit at Luby's after the service. You'll hear which pastors are horrible, which ones are good, and how wonderful the congregation is. Which quarterback should have done better? Which one needs to be fired? And why we would all be better head football coaches than Bill Parcell? Because the Saints did beat the Cowboys here recently. What do you think happened by the time that the third daughter was ready to be married? The news had traveled all over this town. Hey, there is somebody that fills their socks with gold and throws it through the window when you're really in need. Now, Nicholas never took credit for this. 
when people began to suspect there's only so many families and this one is full of uh, not-so-nice people and this one's full of people that probably wouldn't do that, I wonder if it's Nicholas's family that's doing this because somebody's being benevolent. He would simply say, you need to praise God for what's happened to you and refuse to answer the question. Well, the father of these women, although grateful, his pride has begun to be hurt because the whole area knows now that somebody is providing for his daughters in a way that he couldn't. Isn't it amazing how family will see positive changes in somebody's life because of Christ and yet find a way to be jealous because of it? Because it's not the church of their choosing, not their family's heritage? Maybe it sheds some light on negative areas in their life? No, nobody knows what I'm talking about. That's okay. So this time Nicholas is walking down the street and he looks up and the window is shut. It's boarded up. This is where all Christians would go home and say, well, a blessing for me, right? i got a sock full of gold. Guess Jesus doesn't want me to give it to him because there is no way. Not Nicholas. He climbed up on an adjoining building and dropped that sock right through the chimney. It was not too many years after that and people were hanging their socks on the chimney hoping to catch gold. And this is where we get Christmas stockings. Do you have Christmas stockings? Raise your hand if you have a Christmas stocking on your chimney right now. That is a testament to the fact that he loved Jesus in the third century. Now, it just so happens that this Nicholas could not keep this a secret forever. When righteous men are few, they really stand out. One might even say, like stars shine in the heavens. At least I heard that there was a Jewish apostle who said something like that. So pretty soon he was elected the bishop of Myra. That's the particular little town in this province. And as bishop, now in a church dominated by Rome, they had certain attire. Can I borrow that for a second? Just one second. Now, you've all seen that hat from that world leader on TV that stands straight up, right? I always wonder if it hit horns, but I was wrong. These popes, bishops, had other hats to distinguish them from regular people. And they had gowns. Today, if you see somebody in a red gown that's a religious leader, what do you say they are? A cardinal, right? Not the bird, the man. Well, in this day, it just so happens that they wore light linen red garments as the bishop in Myra with a pointed hat. And every year, instead of practicing what we might be familiar with, he had the children come and sit on his lap while he prayed and prophesied over them about their futures in the Lord. Jacob leaned on his staff and prophesied over his children, and good old St. Nicholas had the children in his village come to him, and he put his hands on their head like the apostles that went before him and cried and prayed and prophesied about their futures. Every time you write a check, you give a testament to the fact that a Jewish carpenter from Nazareth is God. We measure our years from the day of His birth. And every time you see a fat guy in a red suit, that's a testament to the fact there was a real Christian in the third century. Righteousness always leaves a legacy, saints. Unfortunately, so does wickedness. But where wickedness will travel three and four generations, we find out righteousness will last a thousand. 
I hope they celebrate Santa Claus every year for a thousand generations. But I want to tell people the truth about the real Santa Claus. It's not a fat guy with elves pulled by reindeer. He was a godly man who gave away his wealth for the benefit of others without seeking anything in return. He was a man who didn't go to the kings in his day. And the other wealthy businessmen, he went to the children and prayed and prophesied over them for their future. And because it came to pass, they came back year after year. I would say that's pretty awesome. Now, church history likes to take men and embellish their deeds. So because of that, we have St. Nicholas showing up when they do the Nicene Creed in the year 325 and supposedly contributing to it. As time would go on in the 5th and 6th century, other things started to be ascribed to him. They said, oh, Nicholas saved some sailors that were drowning. And uh, if Nicholas prayed over your ship, it would make safe passage. Then as time went on further and a certain church needed to raise more money, Nicholas became the patron saint of everything except indigestion. Patron saint of children. Patron saint of uh, fishermen. Patron saint of pawn shops. No kidding. Patron saint of travels. Patron saint of everything. Why? Because you could pray to this patron saint for all of these reasons and throw money in a hat and hope it happens. Nicholas never would have done those things. It's true that it's been corrupted, much like the image of our beloved Yeshua HaMashiach has been corrupted. Many people are surprised to find out Jesus was not a Norwegian Viking. Seven feet tall, blonde hair, blue eyes, good looking. He was a Jew. Probably not more than 5'8". People are surprised when they find out the real story of St. Nicholas. But isn't it worth telling? Don't tell your children there is no Santa Claus. Tell your children who Santa Claus really was. What does the world always do? It tries to take the things that are holy and pure and add corruption to it so that you can't find the truth in it. The church's response and my response 90% of the time has been wrong. It's tainted. Throw it out. If God threw out everything that was tainted, this church would have no room for you. We need to look at our practices. We need to see and acknowledge that some things are tainted and decide to acknowledge the truth in it and love it and embrace it. There are all kinds of holidays Christians will not celebrate. Christians won't eat certain foods. They won't drink certain things. They won't go to certain places. They won't be seen with certain people. And I can find none of that in Yeshua. What was it Philip in front of the temples to the foreign gods? What would people say if they saw him there? What would people say if they saw him in the house of a Pharisee or a tax collector? What would people say if they saw an unclean woman washing his feet? Saints, we need to embrace what is true, what is real, what is good, claim it as our own, and run with it. So what if an Easter bunny is the focus for the world at Easter? I'm going to focus on an empty tomb. So what if a corrupted version of Santa dominates Christmas? Christmas was never Christmas anyway. There is no such thing. It's our invention. Every day should be Christmas for us. But if this is when the world's going to celebrate His birth, celebrate His birth and do it with your actions. The world focuses on a marketing tool with Rudolph and Frosty the Snowman. Those were inventions in the 40s and the 50s by two competing department stores. But wasn't it fun to hear our kids sing about it? 
What's wrong with that? There's nothing wrong with it. I encourage you to look at every holiday in your calendar and find something that you can do that is good. Oh, I know there's that dark one that comes in October. Eight, right? And you go board yourself up in your house, you turn off your lights and you hide. How about you stand with the backdrop of Caesarea Philippi behind you and you proclaim Jesus as Lord in some way? I'm not talking about being carnal. I'm talking about shining in darkness, saints. I was happy we had a Christmas Eve service. We have it in the morning. Because I hope, I hope with all of my heart, you'll go to other church services tonight and tomorrow. And if you're not in other church services, I hope you're sitting at tables with relatives. And I hope some of them are like mine. They get drunk and mad. Right? I hope you are with all kind of crazy people because what is in you is supposed to shine. What is in you is supposed to leave a mark on the world. This humble Jewish carpenter left his mark so that when you write a check or say what day it is, it testifies to when he was born. This man who is just a humble bishop his mark on the world. His stories got told so many times and adapted for their own cultures that they're present with us today 1,700 years later. What deeds in your life are worthy of being retold for 17 centuries? We're capable of it, saints. It's time to rise to meet the challenge. It is time. Santa got his heavy winter clothes instead of his light linen garment because when people heard these stories and they were in colder climates, they described Santa as one of them, just like we've done Jesus. If you're Caucasian, Jesus was Caucasian. If you're African American, Jesus had an Afro, you know? Everything except who they really were. In rediscovering the truth, we can magnify something that is worth imitating. Can you say amen to that? I'd planned to more about how we got reindeer and how we got... But I just really think it'd be a waste. What I'm hoping is that you will walk forward this Christmas... Oh, you know why we have a Christmas Eve? Because they were excited waking up the next day looking to see if gold had flown through their window. And you thought that was a new charismatic phase. <laughs> Wasn't dust back then. It was real nuggets. If you don't know what I'm talking about, I'm glad. I wish nobody knew about that. Saints, y'all have a good Christmas, a Merry Christmas. My gift to you this Sunday morning is that we're ending before my usual 80 minutes. I love you very much, and I want to see this church shine. And the only way that you can truly shine that matters, did you notice they knocked Augustus' temple down? But Jesus' followers are still very strong. You find me somebody who's worshiping Augustus today. Hard, hard, hard to do. But I'm surrounded by people that worship Jesus. All you have to do is be real in Christ. Put aside the religious facades. Lay it down. It was garbage the day it was handed to you. And do what Jesus would do. That's awesome. Stand up. Let's pray. I want to read you something out of Galatians as we pray. It says, Let us not become weary in doing good. For at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those that belong to the family of believers. Saints, the Scripture tells us to do good, not on Christmas, every day. 
This is the day when even the world does it. Let's let Christmas be every day. And when you see a fat guy in a red suit, you need to know this is a testament to the fact that when Christians are real, their deeds are not forgotten. Amen. Let's pray.